Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. Yes, there are actually some doctors and research scientists who actually promulgate you know, lots of transphobic attitudes and transphobic fallacy. And so as a result, you know, um, uh, and they so doubt in the profession, you know, they so doubt among their colleagues. Dr. Clara Tuckmeng Su is a Canberra GP and a transgender woman. In the second of our Sydney World Pride specials, Dr. Sue talks with me about transphobia within the medical profession and how many of the professional colleges are yet to formally endorse gender-affirming care. You've written for me before, back when I was at uh, Insight, mm-hmm. and you talked about your transition process and, and mm-hmm. how that's worked for you. How has working as a GP been since then, both from, a, from how are your patients reacting mm-hmm. and how, how do your colleagues react? Actually, from my point of view, my transition has been very smooth. So I think there are a couple of factors behind that. You no, know? one is that I work as a GP in my own practice. You no, know? so um, because I'm the practice principal, you no, know, I can really enforce you know standards of gender and sexuality, diversity, acceptance. You no, know? so it's basically, look, you know, this is this is a really important thing for us. You know, and our patients come to our practice, you no, know, expecting you know that if they are sexuality or gender diverse, that we will actually be accepting and and encouraging, you know, um, of their diversity. Um, so they see this as a safe space for us, you know. So yes. really, you know, if um, that's not something a staff member can actually um, uh, be part of, then really, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the right environment for them to be working in. But I think that, you know, in terms of um, uh, uh, respecting people's opinions and you know, that sort of thing, I don't ask them what their religious background is, you know, when they employ staff, you know. But I make it clear, you know, that um, our practice sees a lot of patients, you know, who are gender and sexuality diverse, who see us as a safe space. And so it's important that they do uh, continue to actually know that this is a safe space for them. So I yeah. allow people to actually select you know, what they're comfortable with. Now, in terms of um, uh, how it's worked for me professionally and, and personally, I think the other part of it, you know, is that I'm lucky to be working in Canberra. Canberra's, I think, you know, during the... Um, uh, gay marriage postal vote, you know, can have some of the highest votes, you know, in support you know, of gay marriage, you know, living and working in a community that generally is very accepting and supportive of gender and sexual diversity. So I've not really cut encountered any issues professionally. I think it may have been different if I actually transitioned 20 years ago, when right. I think the social environment was much less accepting. If I transitioned at that time, you know, it may have been acceptable for say some of my professional colleagues you know, who are less comfortable with gender diversity to actually voice that to me. That's actually not acceptable now. now the only thing I've heard is that I've heard through a friend of mine who um, works in another practice you know, that one of the doctors they had said to her you know, that he didn't approve of what I was doing, but you know, that doctor's not really felt comfortable about saying it to me personally. Do you promote the fact that your practice is friendly and and capable of treating trans and gender diverse folk? I guess you know, and so that's one of the things that I um uh, that we flag. You know that in terms of the provision gender affirming care, you know, we still don't have enough doctors who are willing to put their hands up and say, you know, that that's an area that I can actually work in. You know, there's currently no no uh, set training protocol to work in that area. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's something, you know, where if doctors have an interest, they can upskill in that area, they can actually pick someone to actually mentor them through that process. I think the reality is that most doctors just think, oh, you know, I don't know whether there could be some 
ethical or legal mind feels here, you know, I'm busy enough as it is doing what I'm doing, you know, sort of thing. I'll just get yeah. someone else to do this, you know, and, and I think my practice is known you know, for being LGBTIQ friendly, you know, so we get doctors actually uh, suggesting that the patients actually contact us, you know, to, um, to right. get their care. So what proportion of your patients would be LGBTQI folk? It's been gradually increasing, you know, so I would estimate, you know, that say on an average week, you know, probably about 30 to 40% of the patients I see with LGBTIQ+. Wow. Plus, and the vast proportion of that would be people who are transgender. You see, my practice was started by a doctor called Dr. Peter Rowland back mm-hmm. in the 80s, you know, and he was one of the first out and proud gay doctors, certainly in Canberra. Yes. And um, he wanted to start a practice you know, that was LGBTIQ friendly and non-judgmental, really, in lots of ways. You know? So in the early days, when I first joined the practice, we did actually have quite a lot of uh, lesbian and gay patients. I think all the years, you know, um, that proportions diminished because I think that um, being sexuality diverse is actually seen as being more mainstream now. So I yes. think a lot of patients who are gay or lesbian feel quite comfortable going to their uh, local GP, you know, and expecting that GP, I think, not to actually be uh, uh, homophobic. It makes me feel good to know that there is somewhere transgender people can go where they feel safe <laughs> getting their health care. <laughs> I live in a regional area in, in sort of west of Brisbane. We all know that access to GPs is more difficult the further out from the cities you get. <laughs> so I can only imagine how much harder that is for, for trans folks seeking affirming mm, care. Mm. Do you see a solution to getting more GPs involved in affirming care? Yeah, I think that there's several strands to that, Kate. You know, I think one of the things that stops GPs from working in this area is, as I said, you know, the the feeling that there may be some legal ethical minefields, you know. Mm. So I think that that to some extent ties back to what we're saying, uh, you know, we start off by saying about, you know, is there transphobia in the profession, you know? Um, and yet there are actually some um, doctors and uh, research scientists, you know, who actually still promulgate you know, lots of uh, transphobic attitudes and transphobic fallacy. And so as a result, you know, um, uh, and they so doubt in the profession, you know, they so doubt among their colleagues about, oh, if you do this, you may get sued. Um, yeah. And the fact that, they, that every now and then there is a, a lawsuit, you know, about in the media does actually frighten people a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that's probably important for the profession is really for the respective specialist colleges, including college of GPs, to actually come yeah. out and say, you know, that we actually endorse gender-affirming care. <laughs> Have they not bothered doing that yet? No, no, no. Yeah, so um, also, um, so with the College of GPs, you know, we have a document on, um, you know, we have a, pos- um, a position statement on the provision of gender-affirming care. Uh, yeah. And in fact, what we actually have to do is that we actually have to apply to the college for them to actually endorse that. And that's one of the things on our task list for this year. And the College of uh, Psychiatrists, you know, actually put out the position statement on gender dysphoria last year that was actually very transphobic in parts. And that position statement was actually created without any consultation with the trans community. So we've actually uh, made representations to them about how harmful that policy is, how flawed the process of producing the position statement is, and they're actually doing a review. Great. Um, Say other colleges like, say, the... Opposition gynecologists, you know, haven't mm-hmm. come out with a position statement as far as I know about, you know, provision of care, you know, for, you know, a gender-friendly environment, you know, for maternity yeah. care. I know that when there was a question about 
the Australian standards of care for children and adolescents you know, under the previous government, that issue was referred to the College of Physicians, you know, yes. under which the pediatricians sit. And they actually um, uh, say that they didn't have a problem with that. You know? But I don't know that they've actually come and fully endorsed that. So I think that you know, all these things are actually uh, works in progress. You're speaking, of course, as chair of OSPATH. Tell me about OSPATH and what you hope it can do to support physicians who are providing gender-affirming care. So um, OSPATH is an Australian professional association for transgender health, and we're mm-hmm. the peak body you know, for health professionals and research uh, scientists who work in this area. So what we've been doing over the years you know, with, is that we've actually written um, a number of position statements about you know, the provision gender-affirming care, um, about issues that come up, you know, like the recent issues in the UK, you know, about the Tavistock yes. Clinic and the reviews and so on, to really clearly state out there you know, what we think the science actually shows you know, and what good medical practice is. You know, um, we all talk about person-centered care, you know, and surely you know, gender-affirming care you know, is a very clear example of how one could actually provide person-centered care. So I think that there's all those uh, viewpoints to be put out there, and OSPATH, OSPATH is in the forefront of that. You know, I can see, you know, um, coming back to how we can actually encourage more GPs to work in this area, one of the important initiatives would be to make sure that GPs actually get educated in gender-affirming care. So at the moment, in medical schools, you know, it's still a re- very ad hoc thing. You know, some uh, medical schools do it, some don't do it. It's not a part of, part of the core curriculum. But I think yeah. as we see in you know, the increasing numbers of people identifying as gender diverse, you know, so among in Gen Z, you know, it's as high as 5 7% you know, in some surveys, you know, sort of thing. Um, yeah. That has to become part of the core curriculum. So I think that as you know, there's more recognition you know, of the need for gender-affirming care, you know, I can see that OSPATH will be involved you know, in discussing educational standards and maybe even be involved in writing educational standards around right. gender-affirming care. You know, I see ourselves as you know, promoting good practice in this area. We've seen some horrible things happening, in, particularly in Britain uh, mm-hmm. lately, with mm-hmm. some real mm-hmm. hatred going on mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. the trans community, the mm-hmm. murder of, of young Brianne Gray mm-hmm. uh, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. There's been a lot of media noise lately from the Australian, mm-hmm. from the New York Times, all, mm-hmm. all sort of saying, you know, are we doing our kids a disservice by indulging in their trans fantasy or whatever they want to call yes. it? <laughs> Do you worry about those attitudes becoming very much to the fore in Australia? Do you think there is that possibility? Uh, I don't exclude anything, you know, but I think uh, my feeling is that Australia seems to be in quite a different space to the UK, despite our cultural yeah. ties. In Australia, you know, there seems to be much stronger support for gender-affirming care. And I think, you know, my, um, and personally, you know, I think that, uh, yes, you know, we're seeing all this really, really nasty stuff coming out, you know, and it is actually quite challenging and triggering, you know, for somebody who identifies as part of the gender-diverse community. I see myself, you know, as a fairly strong person, you know, fairly um, psychologically standard. So I can feel, you know, that if this actually upsets me, what must it be like you know, for young people who are actually going through a lot more uncertainty in their lives? It must be actually really, really hard for them psychologically. So I think I would say you know, the people who are actually talking in this kind of way that you're actually hurting a lot of people. A lot of people are very, very vulnerable. But as I say, you know, I think that in the longer term, 
I'm actually hopeful. And the reason I'm hopeful you know, is the same way you know, that I felt hopeful you know, about the legal recognition of homosexuality and, and homosexual marriage, you know, yes. um, because we are getting actually getting more and more people in Australia coming out and identifying as gender diverse and claiming their identity. It surprises me the number of people I speak to who then say, oh, yes, no, I've got a nephew who's now identifies as non-binary, you know, or my child told me a few years, a couple of years ago, you know, that he was transgender, you know, sort of thing. And I think, though, when you actually have people identifying that kind of way, you know, it becomes, and someone in your family or extended family, it becomes really, really difficult to actually continue to be negative about it. I think it can be negative when it's somebody out there, you know, somebody you don't know, you know, somebody you can actually have the brush of evil. Um, But when it's someone in your family, somebody you know, you know, um, how do you say that to them? So I think in the long term, I am actually hopeful that um, we will actually see uh, positive changes in Australia. Amongst your patient group, do you see much evidence of conversion practices? Not current ones, I wouldn't have said. So Um, survivors from past That's right, yeah. So I do see some people who, who report being survivors, you know, and having been exposed to um, very negative narratives, you know, say either from church, you know, from their family, you know, not so much recently. Although I think having said that, uh, something comes to mind, you know, because um, with Pride Week, Pride Month, you know, and and yeah. uh, Human Rights Conference next week and so on, I've been invited to talk at yes, uh, various forums, you know, and one of the, one of the uh, meetings I've been invited to talk about has asked me to actually talk about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one area where I think you know we still actually see really very very difficult stories coming out. And that's not to say you know that anyone who's transgender who comes from white Anglo Celtic cultural group you know does not experience transphobia. They do, but I yeah. think you know for people who actually come from ethnic and cultural minorities in Australia, uh, um, and a lot of these minorities and cultures are still strongly. Uh, negative towards LGBTIQ identities, you know, they often go to a much, much harder time. I think, for example, in the South Asian community, a lot of the time, if somebody wants to come out as gay or transgender, it often means you know, actually having a sacrifice, you know, um, their family and um, their extended family origin. What does pride mean to you, Clara? I think it's about us being able to revel in our diversity. And one of the yeah. things I really, really like to see, you know, is um, uh, how Australia becomes a more diverse and colourful nation. You know, I go back to, again to this talk about intersectionality. Um, and this anecdote is a story about how the first Zoroastrians actually came to India. So what had happened was that Iran was a Zoroastrian kingdom. You know, it had been conquered by uh, Muslim invaders and mm-hmm. um, Zoroastrians were gradually being persecuted and pushed off the Iran. So a group of Zoroastrians actually arrived in a place in Gujarat near Bombay, Mumbai, yeah. I should say, and they spoke to the local um, king about settling there. The king actually showed them a glass of milk that was full to the brim to say that yes. my country is full. I cannot take any more people. And the leader of the Zoroastrians actually added a spoonful of sugar to the milk and the milk did not overflow. And he said, we will not displace your peoples. We will add a touch of sweetness to your country. <laughs> and right. that's what I see, you know, us diverse yeah. folk, you know, adding to Australia, you know, we will add colour and sweetness to, to this country.
My thanks to Dr. Clara Sue for chatting with us in the Tea Room today. If you would like to hear more from her and other speakers at the Human Rights Conference, which starts on the 1st of March, go to sydneyworldpride.com for more information. Enjoy Pride, everyone, and stay safe. I'm Kate Swanell, and we'll see you next time in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.